This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, folks. This is Wade Paget, Superior Court Judge from the Augusta Judicial Circuit, who along with... I'm Tane Kell from the Cobb Judicial Circuit, and I'm also a, a Superior Court Judge. This is the Good Judgment Podcast. We want to welcome you here to a little overcast, Athens, Georgia, here on May the 3rd, 2019. We are here now to discuss the, the topic of the day. Remember, you can always contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. That is goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Today we're going to discuss what I know is one of the favorite topics of judges everywhere, and that is discovery disputes and motions to compel. Wait, I know that's one of your favorite subjects, isn't it? Oh, yeah. but And, you know, people, I think, misunderstand why we hate them so much. They <laughs> yeah. think that we are just lazy and don't want to listen to people whine. The truth is, at some point, we're going to probably have to get involved in an attorney-client relationship and either call a lawyer lazy or put the lawyer in the place of having to put his client and throw him or her under the bus. That's, a, that's not fun for us either. That's really true. And so what we're going to try to do today is, uh, is, is a threefold purpose for this podcast. First, we're going to analyze the nature of discovery, a little bit about what that uh, is all about. Second, we're going to explore the tools that are available to the trial judge uh, with respect to discovery. And third, we're going to offer some suggestions for how to deal with discovery disputes when they arise, both for the judge and also some hints that will be helpful for the lawyers. You know, this discovery thing really wasn't a problem prior to about 66, because back then we would just go to trial and whatever you could find and muster, you didn't have to tell anybody. We didn't even have the Civil Practice Act until then. Yeah, it was the good old trial by ambush days. Uh, and, and quite frankly, the advent of the Civil Practice Act and particularly these rules of discover, discovery were specifically designed to do away with that. In fact, um, those, those rules were designed to fulfill a twofold purpose. First, they were designed for issue formulation, and second, for factual revelation. Said another way, the broad purpose of these discovery rules, and I'm quoting from an old case here, is to enable parties to prepare for trial so that each party will know the issues and will be fully prepared on the facts. The rules of civil discovery under the Civil Practice Act are designed to remove the potential for secrecy and hiding of material that existed under the previous system. In other words, they were specifically designed to do away with trial by ambush. So when they created the Civil Practice Act, sort of inherent as a part of that process, they have to have some rules as to how judges, those of us who are required to oversee this process, can control the scope and compliance with discovery. So they created two statutes in particular, and of course, Uniform Superior Court Rule 6.4 applies to this as well. But 911.26 and 911.37, they set out the methods and scope of discovery, and then 911.37 allows the judge the authority to issue sanctions and make people comply with discovery. Rule 6.4 specifically directs how they, the parties and the lawyers are to act in the event that a discovery dispute exists. That's right. So I think any discussion of the discovery process requires us to start with the ways in which parties will engage in discovery. And the statute, 911.26, specifically says parties can engage in discovery by, number one, depositions, number two, interrogatories, number three, requests for production of documents or things, number four, requests for entry upon land or property for inspection, uh, number five, physical and mental examinations of parties or others, 
and also requests for admissions for by parties. That mental examination thing doesn't apply to judges when you say others, right? I certainly hope not. <laughs> so the same statute sets out the scope of discovery, and essentially it says the parties may obtain discovery regarding any matter, not privileged, which is relevant to the subject matter involved in the pending action, whether it relates to the claim or defense of the party seeking discovery or to the claim or defense of any other party. It is not ground for an objection that the information sought will be inadmissible at the trial if the information sought appears reasonably calculated to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. And we hear that a lot in court. That's right. And analyzing this uh, scope of this language, the courts have concluded that the use of the discovery process is going to be broadly construed. The broad use of discovery they found favors supplying a party with the facts underlying the opponent's case without reference to whether the facts sought are admissible at trial. So in discovery, keep in mind that the concept of what is discoverable in the action is not constrained by what one party may define as relevant. But instead, it's to be liberally construed to be anything not privileged that might reasonably lead to admissible evidence. That's a pretty broad definition, Wade. It's a very broad definition and allows us to stay out of the discovery process as judges for the most part. But when we are sort of summoned into it because people have a discovery dispute, we have to then start looking at the rules and the law that apply and tell us exactly what we can, can't do, should, shouldn't do. That's exactly right. You know, Wade, in my opinion, the real genius and the real beauty of the Civil Practice Act as it uh, concerns discovery is that that system is designed to run without the intervention of the trial judge and to operate essentially outside of the court system. The parties themselves control the progress of discovery unless and until there's a problem. Well, you know, that makes me think about the, the, the parties can modify sort of the basic rules and timelines and timeframes, et cetera, under 9-11-29. Let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. When, when you get people, because one, one of our biggest banes as judges is case management. Mm-hmm. We have to keep cases moving. We have to keep things flowing. When you get a consent order by the parties mm-hmm. to extend discovery, mm-hmm. do you take a double look at that? Or if they both agree, you're going to sign it? It makes a difference to me, Wade, in that circumstance, first of all, whether it's the first extension for discovery. It secondly makes a difference to me as to whether or not um, the parties seem to have actually been pursuing discovery prior to asking for that extension. And finally, it, it matters to me whether they're asking for an open-ended extension of discovery or whether they're asking for a limited extension of discovery, let's say, for a certain purpose. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment when we talk about um, the interposition of scheduling orders to control discovery. Well, you were talking earlier about the fact that discovery can, can operate without um, judicial intervention for the most part. You know, and as well as, well as I do, that, that discovery automatically ends after six months. Right. It automatically begins after the filing of the answer. Right. The parties don't have to file their discovery. They just file a certificate under Rule 5.1, I guess it is. And under 9-11-29, it allows the parties to modify the discovery procedures by stipulation. In other words, if they're happy, we're happy, for the most part. As you said, if it's multiple extensions just because they're not moving it along and they're 
not paying attention to this case, then maybe not. Yeah, and like I said, Wade, the real beauty of it is, from the trial court's standpoint, if there are no problems in the discovery process, we won't even know that discovery is ongoing unless and until the parties tell us that there's something we need to intervene in. All right, so let's assume we got a discovery dispute. You have some very serious thoughts about Rule 6.4, Uniform Superior Court Rule 6.4. And to be fair, it says that prior to filing a motion seeking resolution of a discovery dispute, counsel for the moving party shall confer with counsel for the opposing party and any objecting person or entity in a good faith effort to resolve the matters involved. Why don't you tell the folks your personal thoughts on, on what you expect to see in a discovery dispute as in compliance with 6.4. Absolutely. Well, I think the most important element of this from my standpoint is the good faith element. And so in a case where the parties have brought to me a discovery dispute, I first look to see whether they appear to have made some genuine efforts on their own to resolve the dispute, because that's what Rule 6.4 really requires. It requires the parties not just to send a nasty letter to the other side saying you have Email. I'm sorry, you're right. Email to the other side um, saying, or or, or even better, a text. Uh, That that, that would even be more effective. But um, it, it requires more than the parties sending a letter saying, you've given evasive answers to all the discovery that we've sent. You're horrible. I'm filing a motion to compel and asking for attorney's fees. It actually requires, if you read the uh, the rule carefully, the parties to confer with respect to each and every issue uh, that they have in resolving a discovery dispute. What a concept. I mean, the idea that lawyers should actually talk about their disputes before they engage the court is really something special. And it's one of the things I like the most about Rule 6.4. So when I have a discovery dispute, the first thing I'm going to look at is, have the parties complied with Rule 6.4? Have they sent their letter? Before they sent their letter, did they confer with one another? Have they been specific about what the deficiencies are in the discovery? And if none of that's been done or if any one of those steps has been missed, I'll make them go back and do it again. So are you not going to allow them to have a hearing on their motion, or are you just going to hear it and then essentially continue it until they comply with the uniform rule? Well, my philosophy with respect to discovery disputes is this, and it probably comes from me being an old civil lawyer myself. I understand that a, that a discovery dispute, particularly a genuine discovery dispute, can halt the progress of the case completely. If the parties stop doing their discovery because they can't agree, then it puts a halt to the progress of the entire case right at the very outset. So my philosophy has always been that I can usually resolve discovery disputes pretty quickly in an informal fashion. And so here's how I do it, or here's, here's how I suggest that you might offer to do it. Parties know in my uh, jurisdiction that if they have a discovery dispute, they can have the opportunity for an informal conference with me by telephone at any time. Um, It's not written down in any rule anywhere. I do it differently than some of my colleagues do. And so the reason that it it is so informal is because it's just the way that I like to do it. Do you have it taken down? Do you record it? Only if the parties ask me to. Now, if any of the if either of the parties objects to an informal conference, obviously it's not going to be had um, because they have a right, I I believe, to have uh, those matters taken down if they might affect the way that discovery is going to proceed. But the truth is, I don't know that I've ever had anyone uh, turn down the opportunity to have an informal conference on a discovery dispute. I mean, you don't have lawyers who object to staying in their office at their desk opening this file for five minutes instead of driving halfway across Atlanta, 
parking, like they don't they don't mind all that. Amazing, huh? It it really is. You know, a lot of times you wonder. The two people at times can be so obviously congenial and nice. You you think to yourself, how did y'all miss this? Yes. How did how did we get here? Because y'all both seem to have a little bit of sense, and you were trying to put forth legitimate arguments, or you didn't get it, or you didn't call. And you, you usually come back to that six point four thing. They just didn't talk. Well, you're exactly right. And there are there are four real reasons that I like to do these as informal conferences. And the first of those is what you just touched on. It's quick, easy, and cheap. The parties don't have to pay their lawyers for a formal hearing. Lawyers don't have to get a, a hearing date and come to the courthouse and do all of the things that are entailed in that. We can potentially resolve a a controversy that is holding up the progress of the case in a 15 to 20 minute telephone conversation. The second reason is there's no delay. If uh, it is going to be much harder to get on my calendar for a formal civil hearing on a motion uh, than it is to get me on a telephone call late one afternoon for 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, The third reason is that I've discovered over time that these kinds of sometimes small disputes can fester between the attorneys And they can cause the attorneys to become entrenched in a particular position and then become very combative with one another over an issue that sometimes can be very easily resolved. And then finally, I found that a quick telephone conference can usually resolve the dispute. I mean, uh, as I've said many times, I'm uh, frequently wrong, but I'm never in doubt. I don't have a problem with making a decision on one of those disputes and telling the parties how they ought to proceed. If they disagree with your informal ruling, they can then get a hearing? Of course. Yeah. I mean, this is an informal process with an informal resolution. Now, I have determined that um, a lot of the reasons for these discovery disputes arise uh, really for a couple of reasons, or or usually uh, they have a couple of sources. The first is uh, a party taking an unreasonable position, and and that frequently is the case. I'm not going to give you access to any of my corporate documents. Well, you know, that's in a corporate dispute case, that's going to be pretty unreasonable. Um, Or a client that is being uncooperative with their own attorney. And I can usually remedy that situation too, with just pointing out some of the remedies that are available to the court if the party continues to be uncooperative. You know, that brings me sort of to the issue of case management as a whole. I think a lot of people have different views on that sort of the tight reins versus laissez-faire sort of hands-off approach. What do you do? Well, I am probably more the laissez-faire school of uh, how I control discovery. You're the French guy. How are you supposed to say that? Laissez-faire. Okay, nice. Yeah, it means to leave alone, basically, or to leave to do. Um, The reason that I take that approach is, again, probably because of my background as a civil lawyer, where I just didn't want judges intervening in the way that I was going to proceed with my case or try my case. And so um, I tried to avoid conflicts, uh, and I was always very, uh, not aggressive, but I was always very conscientious about getting discovery done in my cases because I was aware that there was a certain timeline that had to be followed. I wasn't guaranteed an extension at the end of six months, and I needed to get it done. You would have hated me as a judgment. <laughs> yeah, well, I would have worked with you, uh, absolutely. But my philosophy as a judge is, is pretty simple. If you don't invite me to your discovery party, then I'm not going to crash it. 
if there's nothing going on that needs my intervention and the parties are satisfied that they're getting the discovery that they need or that they're not doing discovery and they don't need to do discovery, then I'm not going to force them into the position of doing something they don't want to do, doing it in an order that they don't want to do it or any of those sorts of things. Um, But I will say this. If there's any hint of a discovery issue or dispute, which is what we usually get through some sort of improper email sent to the judge or uh, sometimes by a telephone call, um, my staff knows that all they have to do is set that down for a telephone conference. If the word discovery is used, uh, they know that that's going to result in a telephone conference with me, and that's the way that we try to resolve it. A lot of times when I am handling a civil case, especially one that seems to have some meat on the bones, I will issue a scheduling order. Now, in my scheduling order, I will put down specific deadlines under which the parties are going to have to complete certain tasks. For example, uh, discovery of experts, filing of summary judgment motions, the dates under which that if you have what I call a dispositive motion, that all dispositive motions must be filed by here, responded to by here. I try to be reasonable because as some really great lawyers have once said, don't ever forget you were once a lawyer. And so when you start putting um, uh, artificial deadlines on things, it becomes hard to be a lawyer. But at the same time, to be fair, we forget stuff, Tane. I mean, people don't really realize that I want I want you to have a reasonable amount of time to do this, but I need you to do it fairly quickly because I'm going to hear 15 other issues or 400 other issues between now and a week from now, and I need you to get it to me while it's still reasonably fresh in my mind. Do you have that experience as well? I do. I, I think you and I are in full agreement that really a scheduling order is one of the most effective tools that we have as judges to get the parties uh, moving in their discovery or get them moving in the right direction in their discovery. And so what will happen with me is once I have one of these informal telephone conferences, the most frequent result of that conference will be I will require the parties to send to me their proposals for a scheduling order. And what I want from them are very specific things, not, oh, I think we can finish discovery in the next 90 days. I want, we still need to take the defendant's deposition and we think that we can accomplish that within 30 days. Here are the other people whose depositions we think we can take and we can take them within 45 days. Um, I do the same as you do. I make them tell us when they're going to name their experts and by when, what date they can have them deposed. Um, and I also have them put a date in there for dispositive motions. And then normally, if we're going to do a scheduling order, I will also have as the end uh, of that scheduling order that within 30 days after the judge rules on any dispositive motions, the case will be set down for trial and a pretrial uh, order will be required of the parties within 30 days of the judge's ruling. So um, I agree with you. <laughs> I just don't normally entered the scheduling order until I have a hint that the parties aren't able to do their discovery. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't either. I don't go looking for it. But once you bring me, as you described it, bring me to the party, I'm going to do something other than rule on this simple thing and then send you back to the the river to flounder around. I will also offer this... uh, this recommendation to judges out there, like you said a moment ago, we frequently get requests for extensions of discovery. I don't, I'm not a big fan 
of an additional open-ended six months of discovery. If they want to, if they want to uh, extend discovery, and particularly if they want to extend it for a, a long period of time, like six months, I will absolutely require a scheduling order to tell me what remains to be done, the time frame in which all of those things are going to be done with some real specificity. We're going to depose John Brown, Jim Smith, and Sally Jones uh, you know, in the next 90 days. And in that case, I'll enter a scheduling order as well. So let's talk about motions to compel, because that seems to be where we really get into the meats and, and, and potatoes of some of this. And, you know, we have these outlines that we're going to make available online, but 9-11-37 basically allows me as a litigant to file a motion to compel. Six, is it 6.4 requires me to make my good faith efforts. And so now I have filed my motion, served the other party, gotten a hearing date. Does everybody get notice? What if, what if my problem is with a non-party? Absolutely. I, I think the important language from uh, 9-11-37A, which talks about notice, is that the statute requires reasonable notice to all persons affected thereby. So there may be third parties who aren't otherwise involved in the case who are required to get notice of a motion under 9-11-37 to compel discovery. So um, that's the first place that you start as a judge is look and see whether notice has been provided to all of the affected parties. Um, then there's also a consideration in 9-11-37-A-1 of where to file the motion. Um, and that doesn't come up a lot, but it is an important, um, an important statute. You always can go back to where the case is pending. I mean, that's that correct. seems to make sense. But you also can go to the county where the deposition, if that's the issue, is sought to be taken. In other words, if you get in the middle of deposition, I can't tell you how many depositions that I've had a lawyer raise an objection and say, I take an objection and we're, we're going to go see the judge about that. And I don't remember ever actually going to see the judge about that, whatever that was. But we would have a lot of posturing in that regard. If that actually happened, you can go to the judge in the county in which the deposition is being taken and get a ruling on that. I'm not always 100% sure why you would, but you can. I think that's right, Wade. And I guess the reason for it is particularly if you're taking a deposition in, you know, South Georgia and your action is pending somewhere in far North Georgia, uh, it may be easier for the parties to actually appear in front of a judge uh, in the county where the deposition is sought to be taken, uh, especially if they have to stop the proceedings in the middle of a deposition, which the statute allows you to do. So we can talk about that for a moment, but what about when people just go dark? They just don't respond at all. Well, I think one of the things that's very clear from the statutes and the case law is that no one can simply ignore discovery or bad things will happen. Um, if one simply fails to make a response to discovery, OCGA section 91137D allows the court to impose some fairly severe sanctions for a failure to engage in discovery. Well, you always have that, that issue with failure to respond to requests for admissions they're deemed admitted. That's right. That's one of the uh, sort of hard and fast rules is you get 30 days to respond to requests for admissions or they're deemed admitted, and that's a pretty severe uh, sanction in and of itself. But now, failure to respond for a deposition, failure to respond to interrogatories, requests for production, et cetera, you, you get some sanctions, but they don't usually involve you can't have a case anymore. That's right. Uh, the courts have been pretty clear that 
the preferred method of handling someone who is not engaging in discovery of that type is that you don't issue the most severe sanctions, that is, entering a default judgment, striking the answer, or striking the pleadings of the plaintiff um, uh, is not the sanction that the courts want you to impose first. So there's a whole range of different sanctions that the court can impose short of that, um, and 9-11-37 uh, sets forth all of those. They're fairly progressive. In other yes. words, we start here, and then we go to there, ultimately ending up with you can hold people in contempt, grant attorney's fees, or have people arrested, dismiss their completings, et cetera. But that's not the first step. That's exactly right, and the courts have been pretty clear about that. Um, you, you know that, that we have the ability, if that's a motion to compel, the opposite end of that is a protective order. Exactly. Um, 9-11-26-C allows uh, persons from whom discovery is being sought to apply for what's called a protective order to protect them from, and the statute says, to protect them from annoyance, embarrassment, oppression, or undue burden or expense. And so when you're making a ruling on a request for protective order, remember those are the criteria that the statute specifically sets forth. You know, we're going to do a whole podcast on the issue of attorney's fees, but the issue of attorney's fees comes up with a lot of frequency in the motion to compel protective order arena. That's exactly right. 9-11-37 um, is really the preferred vehicle for the imposition of attorney's fees for discovery violations. And so you'll usually see the appellate courts uh, admonishing us as trial court judges to use that vehicle uh, whenever the issue is a discovery dispute. Um, I think some of the important takeaways from that, though, are that under 9-11-37, an award of attorney's fees, uh, reasonable attorney's fees, and I'm sorry, attorney's fees and reasonable expenses is mandatory to the prevailing party on a motion to compel, um, except in such instances uh, as where uh, the op the opposition to that motion was, quote, substantially justified or in the circumstance where other circumstances make an award of expenses and fees unjust. What does that mean? Um, I think it means discretion. Yeah, I think it means one of those wonderful things that we love, which is we have broad discretion to determine whether it's appropriate to uh, award fees or not. So when you get involved in these discovery disputes, you basically you start off with the you also progressively respond, I guess. You start off with the telephone conference, eventually can have a hearing, eventually can lead to sanctions, and you try your best to analyze this case based upon these facts, not the last case in which this lawyer had a problem with discovery and the case before that where the lawyer had the discovery problem. That's right. And I think from our standpoint as the trial judges, it's always preferable to use the carrot and then use the stick. So, you know, we try to incentivize people to move their discovery forward and co to cooperate with one another. And then if you find that someone simply is not going to be cooperative, then you use the sanctions that are available to you. Well, folks, I, I know that's just a brief overview of, uh, of what we've talked about with respect to discovery disputes, but I hope it's helpful for you. Um, I, I think just remember to try to resolve the discovery disputes as soon as possible so that they don't interrupt the progress of the case. Use your broad discretion to be as creative as possible to formulate useful solutions tailored to the facts of your case. And use the sanctions that are afforded by the statutes to assure that the parties are complying with the requirements of the Civil Practice Act. Folks, we've talked about progressive, I guess, discipline, for lack of a better word. Just let your response be progressive and try to examine this case based upon these facts, not the fact that it's the fifth such case you've heard this week. that had, these, peop these people didn't cause those other four things to happen. 
and do those things that Tane described and follow those statutes, and they really will lead you to the right direction. Try your best not to let your ego direct these discussions as the judge. Amen, Wade. That's exactly right. Well, that's it for this podcast on the enthralling and exciting topic of what was the name of again of it, of it again? Discovery disputes and motions to compel. We want to. I was just kidding you. I want to thank you for listening to the Good Judgment podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth from ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Stephen Turner, the digital media professional who's going to help us take out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But he can't get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the, to the council superior court judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation despite the fact that I cannot speak. And the superior court judges across Georgia who attend and participate in that process. Thanks to our NJO graduates who have been willing to help us with this podcast. You know that these opinions are our opinions. They don't reflect the opinions or ideas of ICJE, CSCJ, UGA College of Law, or anybody else that has an acronym for a name. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have praise for us. And if you uh, have any criticism, contact somebody else. <laughs> but seriously, we would love your feedback, and both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Once again, I am Wade Padgett, Superior Court Judge, Augusta Judicial Circuit. And I'm Tane Kell, Superior Court Judge in the Cobb Judicial Circuit. Thank you for listening. Tane, anything else before we wrap this one up? We really need to get some phones in here so we can take calls. Really with the phones, Tane? Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.